today on Never Was a Gamer. Wait till you see who's playing the halftime show at the Uva Bowl. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the Red King, Dimitri. Hello. (laughs) Beep boop. I'm an evil AI. I'm British. I'm in the wrong movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Hi, everybody. And boo, welcome to our spooky Halloween episode. But you didn't notice that I am dressed in my Riddler costume because following off of our last episode, our Batman episode, I have a riddle for you. Okay. So riddle me this. My heart feels no pain. My soul feels no shame. Who am I? Uva Bowl. (laughs) Wrong. I am Fury, bringer of the vengeance of the house of the dead. What are you doing? What is this? I am Fury, bringer of the vengeance in the house oh, of the dead. Oh, this is that song. Oh, my God. You had to listen I... to it on pretty much loop for seven minutes. How did you not remember? How could you expect me to remember those lyrics? A sweet, like, new metal rap rock song. <laughs> perfect for 2003. Yeah. About well, the house of the dead. That's about all I learned about the house of the dead. <laughs> yeah, we are, um, in case you haven't guessed, doing some movies today that are based on games. So this is a grab bag that is... Loosely aligned with our arc on licensed games, where now we are doing instead something much scarier, movies based on the games and based on spooky games. Yeah, but um, before we get to uh, the main movies that we're going to talk about today, I have a very important update. I have a Silent Hill update, which is that we played Silent Hill 2. We did Silent... Kind of. One of us played Silent Hill 2. We played a quarter of it, and then Dimitri played the last three quarters while I sat on the couch beside him and told him what to do. (laughs) Yeah, way back when we did our Silent Hill episode, I think, you know, we both uh, expressed a lot of interest in playing Silent Hill 2. We we both heard a lot, you know, of great things about it, enjoyed Silent Hill 1 enough. And uh, yeah, I, I would say Silent Hill 2 is everything that I was hoping it would be and more, but it doesn't quite work within the format of the show, considering that the premise is that these are about you playing some games for the first time <laughs> and not sitting there beside me while I'm freaking out playing a game. I mean, I was also freaking out. I So let me tell you what I learned in Silent Hill 2. I learned that I learned where exactly my um, fear threshold is for how much I can tolerate in a game. And I learned that it happens 20% of the way into <laughs> this game. I just was like overwhelmed and just could not do it. Like I I fully tapped out, but I loved watching this from the couch. I mean, part of the reason why we're not also doing a whole episode on this is because I think most of what we would have to say is like, yeah, everybody's right about how good this game is. It's like really, really good. Pyramid Head's really impactful. It's a really good psychological story. It's a good game. It improves on just about everything from Silent Hill 1. Um, I have honestly never been so scared Doing maybe anything in my life is playing that game because we we kind of also made a pact that we were only going to play it in the dark at night. We were out in the country where, you know, there were no nothing but 
starlight barely. So it was just pitch Country black. Country dark. And my, my God, just like my heartbeat through the most of this game. <laughs> you know, I think this is exactly like the level of graphical fidelity that creates the most fear in me. Right. <laughs> like, right. like just abstract enough, but not quite that Silent Hill 1 ugly. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is this is much less ugly. No, I I was like very very thrilled with how this whole game came together and it was just it was like so so fun to watch. Um and then refused to take the dog out and make you do it cuz it was too dark and I was too scared. <laughs> and then I was very scared. But Pyramid Head just like pops up behind you sometimes. Yeah, dude, it's, it's good. So, so it's but like not it's, in a, it's not like a cheap jump scary thing. It's like really it's like so, earned somehow. So there are there are some cheap jump scares, but there there's also just general tension. It just has yeah. everything that scared me was in this game. I don't like know dread. could be like, more scared. Not just tension for me, actual dread, which is like a which is cool. Um like walking through some of the places where I don't know, just when things get dark, it's so powerful in that game. Yeah, and, which... you know, I, and I'm thinking about it kind of nostalgically now that we're, you know, late October thinking, you know, that game would be perfect totally right now, but there's no way I'm putting that game in. I'm too scared. <laughs> maybe maybe in 10 years. It's too intense. Um, again, great score, great sound design, great maps, you know, playing the hits in terms of what we liked about Silent Hill. But we did also watch the movie Silent Hill Revelation, which we chose because it has it's the one what has pyramid head in it and you suggested it was one of the ones i had a better chance of liking i like this movie this is like one of for me one of the better video game adaptations i will not abide the level of pyramid head disrespect in this movie he appears doing two things one just sitting on top of a carousel turning a big crank so it turns what does that mean what's that that's not a thing he does he's like a and carney then, he turns out, no, he's not a carny. He's not a carny. That's not what he is. And then he turns up at the end to to like rescue the protagonist. What is his? Because he's a that, manifestation that's... of his psyche. And at this point, the protagonist <sighs> has like been dealing with his inner demons to the point where now they can help him. That's not a Silent Hill plot. That sucks. It's very that's, anyway. That's very much well. I guess the optimism is less of a Silent Hill plot. Yes, but... that's what I mean. <laughs> It doesn't go up at the end. It goes down. <laughs> uh, anyway. The, the other thing about Silent Hill 2 that I just want to point out quickly is that it does the thing that we talked about with Blade Runner, where you are making decisions that impact the game and the ending without realizing that you're making decisions. For example, like how many times you look at an item can impact how your how your game ends and what ending you get, which, again, I wish more games would do this instead of very clearly signaling you are making a decision now. Um, just let the decisions happen organically and then give me an ending based on what I chose to do based on my play style and not because I was trying to like min-max a certain, you know, good or evil tree. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, so Silent Hill didn't go as planned. And so today we're looking at two other movies, two other adaptations. The first uh, movie from a series I don't think you're familiar with, which is House of the Dead, which is a light rail, like on rails arcade shooter where you're shooting up some zombies. And this one is directed by uh, Uva Bull. Yeah. After spending whatever, an hour and 40 minutes with this movie, I still feel like I know nothing about this franchise <laughs> other than uh, zombies are shot. 
that <laughs> I'm not sure this is expressive of like a specific who knows who knows what is this movie expressive of <laughs> and then the second movie that we wanted as a little bit of a palate cleanser but we'll see if that actually was successful is a movie based on a game you are very or at least a little bit more familiar with which is Resident Evil so we watched the first Resident Evil from 2002 by uh, Paul W.S. Anderson director of Mortal Kombat and I think recently the Monster Hunter movie. Anything with Mila Jovovich. He's probably directed it. So we can't hold off any longer. I guess we should get started with House of the Dead from 2002, directed by our hero, Uva Bull. Michelle, before this time, were you familiar with Mr. Uva Bull? I think I had heard the name around, but I had no context for what what a Uva Bowl was. So for people who might not be familiar with this name, I'm sorry that you now have it as part of your lexicon. But he is kind of infamously known as one of the worst living directors. People have called him the modern day Ed Wood. And he really made his mark with House of the Dead and then just started making a bunch of other movies based on games. He made this movie. He made the Alone in the Dark movie. He made the Blood Rain movies. He made Postal. He made Dungeon Siege, Return of the King. Those made... all sound fake. That sounds like a sitcom writer making up video game names. Well, <laughs> you're not far off. <laughs> uh, I think he made the Far Cry movie. House of the Dead actually made him quite a bit of money. Uh, I don't know if the other ones did um, because they were terrible and people knew they would be terrible. I know at one point there were these rumors that, you know, he had some kind of tax situation in Germany that was basically like, you know, the the producers, but in real life okay. <laughs> what was going on, <laughs> where by making these flops, you get all these tax breaks that would allow him to fund future movies. <laughs> For a while, he, he was just infamous. He had petitions to try to get him to stop uh, getting him to to try to get him to stop directing. He had critics coming after him, and then he challenged critics to a boxing match, and some of them took him up on it, and he would beat them up because he was trained as a boxer and was an amateur boxer for a few years. Okay, that kind um, of rules, though. <laughs> <laughs> he's just kind of this wacky guy, and um, he didn't really have a legacy when I found out about him. He made a few films in Germany that I guess are supposed to be better than these, but it was my brothers, my cousin and I, we rented this movie, and... We're just astonished by just astonished that it existed and yeah. and that it that it takes the form it does. So we were we were younger. We weren't uh, you know connoisseurs of the German names yet. So we always just thought his name was Ubol, which is <laughs> would be a great name. But it got to the point where for a while, anytime we were watching a movie and it took like an unexpectedly bad turn, and you know a movie that was promising turned terrible, we would always just call that a U-turn. <laughs> That's a good joke for like a bunch of kids. <laughs> yeah, not not bad. The closest yeah. I've got is is thinking that um you know whenever you sit down to watch uh, a bunch of uh, B horror movies now that should be called a you a you a bowl. Uh, th- that's less good of a joke, I, I would say. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, go on. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I've watched a bunch of his other movies, um, but I, I really do think that House of the Dead is his masterpiece for a number of reasons. So the movie opens with one of our characters reminiscing about what has happened on this island. And then we get a quick opening credit sequence that features some footage from the game. But then do you remember the first shot we see after these opening credits? First thing you see are these two dudes breaking beer bottles by throwing by like chucking quarters at them. 
that's the first image we see of these protagonists. And, you know, we see that and we know we're in for a good time. We It really sets <laughs> us up to love these two characters. And, and you know, the thing is, like, it doesn't even have a payoff. Like, these are not, like, Chekhov's quarters <laughs> where... You'd think that, okay, it's it's opens with this, and at some point, this guy's going to chuck a quarter into a Zombo's head. Nope. Just oh. Uva Bowl thinking, like, you know how our audience is going to know that these guys are cool if they're breaking <laughs> beer bottles by flinging their quarters. This, I can usually remember how a movie opens. Like, that's pretty bad. This movie is such a weird mix of, like, things that are weirdly unforgettable, not always for good reasons, and things that just wash over you and are gone, that are just, like, nothing. Well, that's actually a perfect segue into this game I wanted to play with you called Can You Name Any of the Characters? Oh, my God. Okay. I Okay. Yes. Oh. Liberty, who's oh. my favorite character. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah. Do you, have a, do you have an interesting mnemonic device that you might use to remember <laughs> Liberty of all the characters? Well, I, I, so she's like a, a go-go dancer who's wearing like a star-spangled jumpsuit. I kind of assumed it was like her stripper name, not her real name but but, but maybe her, i'm wrong her um but yeah her uh american flag onesie is uh a little on the nose and i think you know makes her in terms of her name the most memorable character well yeah also the main character we're supposed to like makes a racist joke about her being like i don't think she's a natural red white and blue uh oh. liberty's asian if we haven't mentioned that yet um but just just to remind you of some of the other characters, because the movie opens then, so you see those guys flinging the, the coins, and then this voiceover comes on to introduce us to all these characters. So can I describe them by their qualities? Sure, yes, because, yeah, we get the names, and the, the narrator also tells us some of their qualities. So, yeah, okay. go ahead. So what do you remember? We start out with two guys, the hot one and the everyman, like, good guy. Right. Whomst I cannot tell apart and never will be able to. So, and this is literally what the narration says. So you're talking about Greg. He's a good guy, but a little goofy. And again, we see evidence of neither of these traits in this movie. And then the other guy you're talking about is Simon. He's got the looks, but not much between the ears. Listener, I, if you held a gun to my head and showed me photos (laughs) of these two actors, I could not tell you which one was supposed to be the good one. The good looking one. Like and he he later is described by another character as like the guy with the Tom Cruise smile and the rain man mind or something like that. And it's like, who are you talking about? Also, that's yes. a hell of a way to describe a person. <laughs> yes. And let's not confuse him with primi- like primo underwear model Hugh. That's who's not- another character. Oh my god. That's a third guy? That's a third guy. All the guys there are in this four look guys. the same. All the guys there are in this four, look like, the young- same youngish guys good lord but then and so and then the so the fourth then is rudy who is the the person who's narrating yes this, yeah, yeah yeah um who it is revealed at the end i guess is i guess this is a prequel to the game because i guess he goes on to be a villain in the first game yeah he describes himself um you, you see him and he just says that he's just trying his best to act as a, a single guy should but then we've got the girls the okay 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 the blonde one her name's Cynthia, pure eye candy. There you go. Greg's girlfriend. Yeah. Again, this is what the narrator tells yeah, us. Yeah, this the is first not two Dimitri, minutes. just for clarity. This is not my editorializing. <laughs> um, there's uh, the young black woman. She thinks she's Foxy Brown. Her name's Karma. Right. And then there's curly hair final girl. Alicia. She's Alicia. Rudy's ex. Okay, yes. And those are your young protagonists. 
Yeah, there's really, there's like not really anyone to root for here, except for Liberty, who turns out to be rad. <laughs> uh, but don't get attached to her. <laughs> and so, I mean, you can't really get attached to to any of these people. Most of them end up being zombie fodder. I think that's one of the reasons you have such a such a big cast of yeah. indistinguishable characters. So the reason these characters are getting together, because they're going to a rave on a mysterious island. So Rudy, Hugh, and Liberty are already on the island. And the rest of the characters, though, have missed the boat and are waiting at a dock to find a boat to take them to the mysterious island. Now, usually I love this trope, like the, you know, waiting on a dock to go to some mysterious place. Enter the Dragon does it. Mortal Kombat does it. Like a lot of, uh, you know, tournament uh, or movies with tournament plots do this, where you get all these characters meeting on the on the dock for the first time, and and it's really exciting. This is just this is this is just terrible. This is a, <laughs> this is such a boring version of this trope. Except there is one saving grace to this, and that's Clint Howard. He is so much in this movie. Uh, as the as our characters are, you know, they're looking around uh, uh, on the dock. They're looking at the boats. Clint Howard just pops into frame. Yet he basically plays an Igor in this. Like <laughs> yes, he's full like accurate. a little hunchback. He's like a, the minion <laughs> of like a straight man. <laughs> like, yeah, so he so yeah, so he just pops into frame. He's wearing bright yellow raincoat, bright yellow rain hat. He's got a hook for a hand. Like he's from an entirely over. different movie. He just like Oh yeah. He's chewing up the scenery. He's just got the, he puts on this raspy voice and he's just being a total asshole to these people. He's like, "What are you guys doing here?" Like that kind of voice. It is it is so good. Um he he's just so watchable and the first time we saw this, we were just dying. Um <laughs> though this time I realized that something I thought was the movie's best joke, I don't think it's a joke. So so you see Clint Howard, and he comes out and he's got this hook for a hand. And then he goes and he hangs the hook, I guess, on another hook on, on, <laughs> on the ship. So when we first saw this, I remember thinking that, oh, he was just holding a hook. And we were supposed to like think that he had a hook for a hand. And then he just like puts it away. Which is funny. And he, he hangs his hook on a hook. That's all good. Yeah, that would be funny. But no, he actually just has a hook for a hand. <laughs> oh, God. He's just putting it away. So it's not a joke. I thought like he was holding it. But no, it, it just... He's got a hook hand, which again fits into that sidekick kind of character. All the better, but I thought Uva Bull had one good joke, and he did not. False. Um, but but yeah, he's just he's just eating up the scenery, and so so the captain of the ship comes on, whose name is Captain Kirk. This movie commits the GTA Vice City Lance Vance sin <laughs> of giving its character a stupid name and then making jokes about how that name is stupid. I'm on record of not approving of this. <laughs> like, you chose to call him Captain Kirk. You don't then get to be like, oh, get a load of Captain Kirk over here. Like, what? Yep. he uh, Many jokes about how he does not like people making the connection between him and the Star Trek Captain Kirk. So our cadre protagonist here has explained to Captain Kirk that uh, they need to go to this mysterious island. Yeah. Uh, Isla del Morte, I think. Yeah. To which Clint Howard... I think his name is Salish or Sally or yeah, Salish, Salish, something like that. I think. I'm, but but Clint Howard to this just goes, yeah, morte. That's Spanish for death. In case you don't speak Mexican, like and and that's underplaying it. Like he's he's delivering these lines with so much ferocity. It is like it is like a a high school drama class washout. Like, it's like, like it's he so feels big. like this is finally gonna get him one up. 
on Ron, right? Like people are <laughs> going to see this performance and be like, we were wrong this whole time. You're the better Howard. I also like you just said it's Spanish. So why are you now saying if you don't speak Mexican? Like, well, that's his. He, that's the kind of jokes he makes. He's a <laughs> he's a funny guy. He, he's he's going on. You know, there another line that I remembered from you know twenty years ago when I saw this movie is that you know the they're like we can't take you there and the protagonist either Simon or Greg asks why and Clint Howard's like why. <gasps> Why? Why? They always ask why. Okay. Okay. You just helped me solve a huge mystery. So you had a game for me. I was going to have a game for you, which is help me remember why I wrote these insane phrases down in my notes while I was taking notes on this movie. (laughs) Because I came back to my notes and there's whole things in here that I'm like, this is unhinged. I have no idea what this is referring to. And one of them was why, why they always ask why. <laughs> and now I remember saying, is he also responsible for, it says here, humpity bumpity? Nope, that's coming up. Okay. <laughs> that's co- okay. I, I see. I see why you might think that that would be a Clint Howard line. Because I have that written down with no context. I also have written down. That I is a great line. I think one of the first things said is, Good evening. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? <laughs> Which I don't know why, but really made me laugh. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, we'll get to Humpity Bumpity. That is a goofy Greg line, but we'll we'll get there. <laughs> so anyway, um, reluctantly, Captain Kirk, Clint Howard, take them on take them on the boat, bring them to Mysterious Island. Cut to what's going on 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 this mysterious island. There is a sweet rave happening on this island. um, Upwards of 18 people in attendance. (laughs) (laughs) You've got being DJed by Canadian music legend Biff Naked (laughs) with this weird like song that's about stranger danger. But yeah, this is in broad daylight. It is the shittiest looking rave you'll ever see there. People look like they're so miserable. There's this crappy like Sega banner up on the stage that... (laughs) You know, if I was Sega, even though you know I've licensed my House of the Dead game, I'd be like, you, you don't, you, you don't. You can take that us. down. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> Maybe you can. Can you just like write Nintendo over it or something? <laughs> and, and so, r- let me know if you remember this. So, as this is happening, so you know this rave is going on, and you know our protagonists are trying to get there. We have this other kind of mini subplot with these two characters, who I guess are named Matt and Joanna, who appear, and we kind of never see them again. You may remember them from um, kind of making out and then going to the beach and then going swimming and there being some Jaws-like suspense that something was going to happen to one of them in the water, but nothing happens to them. And then Matt disappears and then Joanna goes looking for Matt and then she stumbles upon the eponymous House of the Dead. Okay, we also just solved another one of my mystery entries in my notes, which is I had written down, see if you can decipher this, 1330. Four MC tits. Huh. Okay. That was by the the time code on the movie was 13 <laughs> minutes and 30 seconds in when I had seen four tits on main char- of main characters. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like named characters in this movie. <laughs> I think that's what that I don't, was. I don't think it has to do with these people because I don't no, it, know. Yeah, you get because she, she gets naked to go swimming in the, in the oh, lake. Oh, right, right, right. You're right. Yeah. So... So this little mini plot with these characters is so weird because they're characters we don't care about, have no real import on the story, and never come back. But yet we spend way too much time with them, and they're the ones who are used to set up the fact that there is something 
messed up on this island. There are zombies on this island. In in a normal movie, like in something like an actual Jaws, you set that you might want to do that with a character who you're not going to see. You give them 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. It's like you you can take these two characters who we don't care about and set up that something is messed up or there is a threat out there. Um, that hasn't yet reached our actual protagonist, you can do that in literally 30 seconds. We probably spend 10 minutes with these characters. Well, here's the problem with that. The whole concept of there's a, there's something out there that hasn't yet reached our main characters but will is not how this movie works. <laughs> this, this does establish the uh, pacing golden rule of this movie, which is that things happen immediately. Like, there's no... Tension is never allowed to exist for more than about five seconds in this movie. Like the distance from something being introduced to having it do whatever you're supposed to be afraid of it doing is like one beat. Yes. And except with this weird thing at the beginning where there is actually moments of tension and then they just disregard that, you know, (laughs) that technique, that narrative technique forever. Um, Well, except with one other thing which is the question of what Captain Kirk is smuggling, which oh. you don't find out until close to the end. But then when you find out it's guns, of course it was guns. It was always going to be bu- guns. It's the most boring possible answer. It's guns. We'll get to these guns. <laughs> um, so so by the time our characters who are on the boat with Clint Howard and Captain Kirk reach the island, the island is deserted and the rave seems to be over. Ooh. And instead of really wondering, this is where... Our uh, goofy Greg decides that it's time for him and Cynthia to go do some humpity bumpity. Oh, that's where this is from. Yes, and so they run off. What a sexy way to describe a that! Tent, and he like grunts these words out, and he says them <laughs> multiple times. Uh, humpity bumpity. Oh, I think this is him being goofy. I think it's. I think it's him being goofy. This is an important part because they go into this little tent. Um, and he talks about having to seal the Velcro. But then Greg realizes he has to go to the bathroom first. And so he leaves. And while he leaves, zombies enter and kill Cynthia. And but, and Greg Greg has disappeared. And and where he goes is is something we'll return to <laughs> in a bit. Um, but so at this point, the others then go on to explore the island. And then they stumble upon this creepy house where we saw Matt and Joanna. But... Matt and Joanna never show up again because the movie does not care about them. We are just meant to forget them. Instead, here's where they find Rudy, Liberty, and Hugh. And so this is where everybody teams up. And Rudy and Hugh reveal that they've filmed what happened, which is um, zombies attacking the rave. And so this is where everybody starts to learn that um, there are zombies on this island. I literally just in my notes had written... Uh, company bumpity, and then three exclamation marks. I was like, I don't know what this is. Yep. And so, and all the while, while this is happening, a real creepo is spying on them from the bushes, which you might remember. Yeah, he's got like a stitched together face. Mm. He does not look frightening in the least. No. <laughs> so this is this is how our characters get together. We also get the introduction of another character who I think is probably the only actually cool character. In the movie, who is Casper? Right. This is like just, a, a lady ranger who has been a badass coast guard lady. Yeah, yeah. She's she's got a shotgun. She's been tracking Captain Kirk. She knows he's smuggling stuff, uh, and then is quick to realize this has gone real bad. And as the only person with a badge and a gun, she actually tries to take some responsibility for these like lost children who are in the woods. Yeah, she has a huge arsenal of weapons, which she 
uses swiftly on on some zombies. Um, so they meet up with her, and then and then they eventually find Greg, who's in an overturned porta potty. Right. You might remember <laughs> I this. I've forgotten um, about this. So it's overturned. He and they, he comes out. So they, they, they hear something inside and they, they open it and I think maybe it's going to be a zombie, but Greg comes out and he's just covered in like shit and piss. Right. I, I bring this up because for the whole movie, all I can think about is how much he must smell. I know. Like he's around for most of the movie and like they should just have sacrificed him, like thrown to the zombies just to avoid the stench. Right. It's the Otacon problem again. <laughs> yeah, not a gun his pants. Wait, doesn't, oh, no, out, later, no. doesn't Casper tell him not to come with her because he smells like shit at one point? Does that happen? I think if, so. If if so, then that confirms that she's the only like real person in this. In this? Yeah, totally. <laughs> but for this whole movie, he's just like so just if you're watching this, keep in the back of your mind that this whole time he's just covered in shit. There's shit smell in this entire in every scene from here on out. <laughs> And this this ties into something I wonder about the end. So we'll we'll return. <laughs> but you know, this is where we get our first big action sequence where these these creatures on this island finally decide to make their presence known and felt and chase our our gang, chase them through the forest. The editing in this first sequence uh is really just a precursor for the rest of the movie, <laughs> but it is so bad. There is no tension, which we've kind of already established, um, never really happens in this movie. No tension at all. But we never have any sense of where these creatures are in relation to the characters. No, no, no near or farness. We have no sense of who's moving in what direction. We have no, no anything. It literally shows the characters hopping over a down tree, cuts immediately to a close up of a zombie hissing. Cuts back to the characters still jumping <laughs> over the down tree. Cuts to a close-up of another zombie who, for all we know, could be on a different freaking planet. Because um, it's just a close-up of their face. It's like a 45-second sequence. And I'm pr- pretty sure in that time, the characters move like a total of 10 feet. Like, they're just kind of jumping over this tree or, like, rounding a bend every time we show them. And just, like, cutting to zombies who don't seem to be chasing them. They just seem to they're be kind of static. They're just zombie stuff, honestly. Scowling just, at the camera. Yeah. <laughs> Like completely disconnected. It's it's so bad. Like it's not a chase. It's not a chase scene. No. Like you're picturing a chase scene in your head if you didn't watch this. And that's not what it is. It's just a scene of people running intercut with just shots of zombies, period. It's yeah. This it, is not a movie. It, <laughs> it doesn't do anything that a movie does in terms of making images add up to a a conceptual action. So this and then this whole time they're running towards back towards I guess where this boat is this this Casper is trying to get them off this island, um, and of course as they as they get close to it they realize that the boat is under attack by zombies which whomst swim in this. Oh yeah, they it's, do. It's a major feature of these zombies is that they are just absolutely elegant underwater, which is not a trait I ever would have this, predicted. This upset you so much. I was so mad about this addition to zombie lore because so one thing, they're excellent swimmers and that does not make sense. These are like sort of the shambling these aren't like the hyper fast kind of zombie. These are the like clumsy, not very coordinated ones. It makes no sense that they're good at swimming. Um maybe they're amphibious. Which is, I guess, or, or or and like amphibious, but also like better in the water. Yeah, like a frog, or like yeah. I I just it also 
it's a weird addition. It, it feels weird that they are adding something so significant to what feels like the zombie lore without it being anything. I, I, it's not even just they're adding something. It's that there's there are no rules that govern these yes, zombies. Yes, that, that's actually what it is. That, thank you. That's actually what it is. And also, it like... I guess you saw one sort of in the tension underwater with the the swimming couple in the very start, and then you see them attacking the boat here. But I just felt like there's such an emphasis on establishing that they swim. I guess I also thought this would have some sort of mean something in the full. I don't know. I don't know if you've noticed by this point in the movie, but Uva Bowl is all about breaking the rules. He's all about no rules. He's about no conventions. (laughs) He's the bad boy of filmmaking. I guess. And yeah, and here's where, you know, they get to the boat and uh, Captain Kirk does not give one shit that there are zombies climbing on his boat. He's Unfazed. just smoking. He's just smoking a cigarette, just popping off the zombies with his gun. No tension, zero tension, negative tension. So is there is there a level in House of the Dead that's on a boat? Like, is this something? There are many House of the Deads. I'm going to assume that at least one of them has a level on a boat. Okay. But But I think the thing you bring up, right, is that and and we'll we'll talk about this during the major action sequence but you know i do think that uva bull is like okay i've got this game that is a rail shooter light gun game which is basically you know like arcade whack-a-mole yeah and and so i want to make my scenes like that without realizing that those are the most boring possible <laughs> things to as a spectator to watch because you basically have you know like one guy standing there just like popping off the zombies as they stupidly like pop out of nowhere he's he's, captain kirk is literally just turning around side to side like one hitting these zombos off the boat yeah just uh incredible waste of time (laughs) as a scene (laughs) but once once you know these zombies are kind of dealt with this is where we learn about the lore because captain kirk knew what was going on the whole time okay so the lore in this is that There was, back in olden times, there was a criminal, a pirate, who got exiled from Spain. Because he, he, it's because he was engaging in dark experiments. Yes. Uh, So, and then as he was being taken to the Americas, he killed all the crew of the ship. And then when he got to this island, enslaved all the people and continues his experiments there. Now, important note. They establish at the top that they are going to an island off the coast of Seattle. Yes. Now, I'm no geographer. <laughs> but riddle me this. How? 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 Did I mention that Uva Bowl is all about breaking the rules? <laughs> this is a stupid thing to get hung up on. But like, you as we're talking about all this like... Ooh, like legend of whatever Spanish pirate shit. They're in like the Pacific Northwest. Like this does not make sense. This is absolutely insane. Like, I don't even know what else to say about this, but it it just, it bothered me so much. <laughs> it's like, why? You didn't have to say you were in Seattle. You could be anywhere. We don't know. We're stupid. Ugh. Clearly they think we are. So I don't know why they didn't just do Why add that. that detail? Do less. Oh. But yeah, and the other thing we learned about um, this Castillo Sermano was that he created an immortality serum and he has now taken over this island and can command the dead. This 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 is all very important. 
Um, but as far as we know, he mostly just awkwardly spies from the bushes most of the time, <laughs> like like a shy boy who wants to play with the cool kids. Yeah, he's just kind of observing them. He wants to watch that couple have sex. And otherwise, he's just looking at what's going on. He's not yeah. really active. And and the other thing we forgot to mention is that somewhere in, in amongst all this action, Simon, the uh, good looking one with nothing between the ears, he gets a tiny scratch on his face. And oh, it's like, right. God, I forgot about this. It's the end of the fucking world for this guy. He's like, just kill like, me. <laughs> he's like, all I got is my looks. I don't got much going on between the ears. <laughs> and so, and so, uh, oh, Mama Casper puts this huge bandaid on it. It's like, <laughs> it'll be okay. But it's, it's just a, it's a tiny flesh wound, man. But, but he's, he's making a stink about it. And then speaking of making a stink, remember that Greg is still there full of shit. <laughs> It's like literally the kind of cut that even if it scars will only make someone more attractive. <laughs> you know how hot people have scars and it just works? <laughs> the problem is that Simon is not hot. Well, yeah, exactly. But in the fiction, it's yeah, it's wild how quick he goes to like, just leave me here. <laughs> yeah. So they learn this lore and they decide that they should head back to that house for shelter. Yes. Um. So, but so first of all, so when they get there, they realize that it's the courtyard is just absolutely swarming with zombies. So, like, maybe it's not the best place to go for shelter, but no. they've committed to we've this are, idea. We've got so the still plan. Go there. <laughs> and so, we're getting to the major action sequence of the movie. But first, before this, this is where we we learn what Captain Kirk has been smuggling, which you've already spoiled. Yeah, it's guns. It's the it's the <laughs> least exciting least interesting possible thing is it something secretly committed or connected to the the whole horror that's unfolding <laughs> here no has he been unknowingly bringing some sort of drug or ingredient you know anything that is going to add a new dimension to the plot or what we thought was happening no he's just brought a shitload of guns so that they can have this like 25 minute like <laughs> one third of the total well, runtime of the movie gunfight okay, okay. Just, so before this because you know who you know who is not disappointed that he brought a shitload of guns <laughs> uva bowl because before this action scene there's this lengthy scene where kirk reveals his stash and the characters get to select their weapon <laughs> and by how this is shot you know that uva thinks this is so sweet you've got close-up of guns you've got close-ups of people touching guns you got guns in slow motion. You've got close-ups of people attaching grenades to their belt buckles, putting clips into the guns, guns being pointing loaded, their guns, guns being locked, guns being cut. Yep, pointing their guns. Casper correcting their posture, putting guns in holsters. He like treats this as if it's like the scene from Home Alone where Kevin's setting up the traps and like thinks it's as iconic. It's like the like, Avengers it, arming up, like putting on their uniforms. Like it's like it goes on for so long. <laughs> But then nothing can prepare us for the length of the action sequence to follow the storming of of the house. This is the piece de resistance of this movie. This is something that this is an action sequence that will be studied for generations. <laughs> this is like, OK, so first of all, it goes on every bit as long as as he is saying. But also it does this weird thing that almost goes character by character and reminds me of like a choose your fighter kind of setup where like one of them will be fighting zombies and it'll like sort of freeze and do like a 360 circle around them and just like let you just look at them like yeah yeah so this is this is kind of from the game but also i think that by 2003 
the Matrix shot must be super cheap to do because he does it all the time. Yeah, stuff is being slowed down and sped up back and forth for like no obser- for no observable purpose. Just like this scene actually goes on for about seven minutes, <laughs> and it is literally just zombies rushing in and then basically getting shot, but intercut with shots from the House of the Dead game. Yes. Why? I'm not sure. It's called is, House of the Dead. Is Uwe Bull, is he making some kind of commentary on the violence of the video game that's translating into the real world that's seeping in? No. No, I think he just thinks like, he's like, see this zombie? I have one that kind of looks like it here. And if I, you know, if I use like a match cut here, you can, you can see the resemblance. And uh, remember, this is a game, House of the Dead. I think he just, maybe you've played. Yeah, I think he just doesn't think that we would piece together the subtleties of how it's connected to the game, like the part where you shoot zombies without being <laughs> visually reminded of it. Yeah. And maybe it's also to legitimize why, again, this might be giving him too much credit, but maybe it's to legitimize why he's he's filming these action sequences in this most anticlimactic, boring way where <laughs> it is just a whack-a-mole, like it's a gun whack-a-mole. Well, and we get to see so much of it twice. Okay. <laughs> this This is the part... That almost broke me. <laughs> so the sequence, again, goes on for seven minutes. And it's nothing new happens. It's the same. It's just variations on a theme for seven minutes. But then almost immediately after it's over, I guess the one thing of note that happens is this is where Liberty gets killed. Okay. Also, this is where you realize that Liberty knows Kung Fu. And oh, yes. well, Liberty turns out to be like a martial arts ass-kicking master came out of nowhere who knows why doesn't matter she still dies but you know yeah and so and so so that kind of happens towards the end of the sequence and so kind of immediately after we get a close-up of rudy who's watching liberty get killed and he's looking really pensive and then you zoom into his head and you know we enter his mind and we know he's gonna you know we're gonna get we're gonna have access to his thoughts and what is he thinking about he's thinking about the scene that literally just happened, because we get a flashback to the scene we just saw. I swear to God, it was forty-five seconds prior. It 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 was like it was like the exact same sequence, but just edited faster. I mean, Uva Bull in interviews was very proud of this. He he said, you know, one way he's going to appeal to video game and action fans is that whereas most movies have an average of twenty-five hundred edits, his movie's going to have sixty-five hundred. And I think it's not a good half count. of them. It's not like, oh, <laughs> all the best the quality movies have more edits. Where he just re-edits the scene we literally just saw and presents it as a character flashback again, literally after we just saw it. This is insanity. <laughs> this is the most bonkers thing I have ever seen. To the point where if you put this in a museum, I would trick myself into thinking there must be some kind of experimental right you know intentional experimental technique it's almost an art piece here. because it's so far outside any reasonable choice <laughs> you're like what is he saying with this uh what he's saying is he doesn't know how to make movies good I- i'm almost impressed <laughs> <laughs> you know you're a hard but man I- to shock with this kind of thing you've seen some movies in your day i i'm glad that you know yuva bull was is able to bring you an experience that makes you feel invigorated in this way (laughs) like there are like movies do that thing often where you know they will flash back to 
key plot points that we've seen not that long ago, but they want us to remind us just in case we're dozing off or whatever. Highlight one specific but, detail that we may yeah, not have been paying yeah. attention to. Yeah. And and that usually actually kind of annoys me. But this this just kind of goes full circle. It can't annoy me anymore because he's re-showing me an entire scene that I just saw. The scene doesn't even have room to breathe at the end and we're watching it again. Yeah, we're still in it. You're still in the battle. when you. Maybe he's <laughs> like, peep, maybe he's thinking like, people will want to watch this again and rewind it. So I'm going to I'm gonna do them a solid. So they're not even going to have to hit rewind. They're just going to see it again immediately. And if you're in the theater, you don't even have to go see this movie again. Here's the scene that you want to see again right now. Thank we're you. We're playing I, the hits today. <laughs> highlight, highlight of the movie. I, yeah, I have, I have nothing else to say. I, 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 I am I am speechless. Eventually, so they so they eventually do make it into the house, and then you know after that, there's there's really not that much more to talk about after that. Like where do you well, go from there? There's, for a, one there's thing, a sweet and oh, go ahead, yeah. For one thing, one of my favorite lines of the entire movie, one of the girls who remembers who, um, comes into the main room and go and goes, guys, check out this book. It looks pretty old. Maybe it'll help us about a <laughs> random book that they found in this house. And then sure enough, you know, a couple minutes later, she'll have leafed through it on page like 400 and whatever that, of course, she has like been able to to skim through to in this time. There's something about immortality and experiments and blah, blah, blah. But she just like pulls this one random book <laughs> off a shelf and it's like, look. Old books have a lot of knowledge in them. It looks is what pretty I mean. old. Um, this is also where we actually have a very serious scene between Simon and Karma where he has a deep conversation with her where he says, quote, this is again, little, little scratch. He says, quote, who will ever be able to look me in the eyes with a face like this? I'm a freak. I belong in the circus. Like the most earnest, dramatic moment of this movie. Yep. Yep. Is this is again, this is this is like ready player one level <laughs> face disfigurement with the. You know the um yeah the the like eye burn or or birthmark or whatever it's a birth yeah. the birthmark yeah it's like I, it's nothing it's, it's just and he's like with this hot girl who like has had a crush on him since the start of the movie which we only know yeah. because we were told not because we got to see it acted out or any sort of chemistry um and who still is into him who still is like hey listen buddy I got good news for you so like he doesn't have a problem here at this point you know all all is lost and and Simon eventually decides it's better off to be dead than to have a scratch on his face. And so he sacrifices himself for the good of the group. Kirk sacrifices himself. Basically, all the characters except Alicia and Rudy, you know, the, the exes, all all die. Except for Greg. We don't know where Greg has gone. He's disappeared. And then all of a sudden, he kind of appears, ostensibly, this man who's ostensibly Greg appears to to help them and, and and shepherd them along and 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 save them and bring them into this cave. Guys, this and way. And then we learn that bum, 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 it's Cortez. Castillo. <laughs> <laughs> it's Castillo all along wearing Greg's face. He peels it off dramatically. <laughs> Here's the thing. He put it would still smell like shit, right? Oh yeah. Like he takes this guy's face that is full of feces and urine, <laughs> cuts off his face, and then pastes it onto his own face. He also did he take the whole scalp also, like with the hair and everything? Because he's bald. This is less of a big deal than the shit smell. I'm just saying. It's like Castillo. Like, couldn't you have picked somebody else? I, I guess he doesn't. I guess 
despite dis- despite all of his own scars, he still doesn't want Simon's <laughs> face because it's too hideous. <laughs> Bridge too far. It's like I'll keep my own Frankenstein skin, <laughs> patchwork skin. <laughs> And so then he tries to kill them so he can harvest their bodies to to keep them alive. And this is where he explains immortality to the dumb dumb audience. He basically says he wants to be immortal so that he will never die. <laughs> he's, he's like they ask him why. Like he says he wants to be immortal. And they say why because they're always asking why. Why 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 do you want to be immortal? And he says so I can live forever. <laughs> Oh, okay. Thank All you. Right, got it. Great. <laughs> For dictionary man. Excellent character work on this guy. Really, really strong. Um, yeah. It's like okay, so we've so we've learned he knows what immortality <laughs> means, and that's pretty much his only character trait. Eventually, he gets into a sword fight with Alicia. Yes. Um, she is terrible at sword fighting. I wrote down. This is like Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> where she just stands there and he creates movement around her. She is good at having boobs and a little tank top, though. You have to give her that. Very bad at the sword fighting. <laughs> um, somehow, like, Castillo maneuvers into position so that he can get his head cut off. <laughs> uh, I mean, but- we skipped a pretty significant piece here, which is that Castillo was in his lab full of stuff what makes dead things grow back there's a whole there's like a little tank of goo um that they figure out is what he's using to reanimate dead things that ah yes his embalming chamber that's actually a pretty cool set i'll get i'll give i'll give it that it sort of has a like batman villain quality like one of the one of the either like late 90s batman villains or like borderline a sort of slightly grimed up 60s batman like there's you're there I hope I can read his journals. <laughs> I hope he left his notes strewn about. It. I want to be immersed in this space. It'd be better than this shit. Oh, that's basically me being like, I found this book. It's pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> that girl was me. <laughs> oh yeah, Casper got Casper died too. Anyway, so they're having this sword fight. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. Yeah, so they have this sword fight. Alicia gets stabbed, but Castillo gets beheaded. But his beheaded body like a chicken is still animated and tries to choke Rudy. Yeah. And then in her dying breath, Alicia goes and stomps on his head, which is kind of sweet. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. And then she collapses because of how she got stabbed in the chest. Yes. And so we assume she's dead, but then we see her with Rudy. Huh. Coming, coming out of the lab exit. Hmm. Is revealed that he has given her the immortality serum. Why? Because he wants so her that to she live will forever. never die. <laughs> <laughs> the the wild thing about this too is for some reason, like this whole like cop swarm shows up right at this moment. It's like I don't I don't know that we established that anyone was able to like call for help. I don't think I don't know if they have really a reason to be there at that point, but whatever. The cops are here now. Um and this is also where uh, Rudy reveals his name, which you haven't known this entire thing, which like I also had no context for. Um, and so it was weird to 
I was like, is that supposed to mean something? But I guess so. It does. Actually, so here, so here's the thing: you actually do know his name because in the opening monologue, he mentions the name Curian, which is his last name. So the only thing you don't know, which the 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 film like presents as a surprise, is that Rudy Curian is really Rudolph Curian. <laughs> oh my god. Twist. Never saw that one coming. It's about as much suspense as every other plot beat in this entire thing. And that is House of the Dead, a movie that is now, you know, will live forever, has made Uva Bowl immortal. Incredible. So, yeah, I think we all deserve a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about Resident Evil. My heart feels no pain. My soul feels no shame. And we're back to talk about our second movie based on a spooky video game, 2002's Resident Evil by Paul W.S. Anderson. And so I think we were hoping, I mean, I've seen this movie a few times. I think you were hoping that this would be maybe a little bit of a, a palate cleanser from from House of the Dead. You know, this is a pretty popular series. It spawned, I think, six movies in this series and is about to spawn a reboot. I mean, I'll I'll say this for this movie: it's a movie. It's put. It's constructed like a movie, the yes, way movies it, are. It def, it definitely does that, and and I think importantly, it's based on a series that you're actually familiar with. So knowing what you do about Resident Evil, you've you know watched some be played. You played some of the the first one. What what, what did you expect from a Resident Evil movie? I guess I expected, I mean, obviously we're going to have zombies. Obviously we're going to shoot guns at the zombies. Obviously. Um, I think I expected, for some reason I had it in my head that this would hew a little bit more closely, not as a literal adaptation of the story of like Resident Evil 1, but I sort of was expecting a sort of gothic mansion-y time. I was expecting some, you know outdoor like hounds on the moor kind of stuff um and uh a giant snake i mean not necessarily exactly a giant snake but something some some slightly silly slightly campy stuff in that sort of vein a bit um and and this movie is totally quite different than that i would say yeah it's it's a really interesting movie i mean the whole there's kind of this you know movie game feedback loop that you get with resident evil where Resident Evil was explicitly inspired by Dawn of the Dead. The Resident Evil creator, Shinji Mikami, has spoken kind of at length about his admiration for those movies and how that inspired him to make Resident Evil. Right. So you have a movie influencing a game, which then goes back and feeds back into influencing a movie. And then the movies become, as we saw, pretty action oriented and get increasingly action oriented. And partially due to their popularity, that element of them then feeds back into the games where... You know, by Resident Evil 6, it's kind of not even recognizable as a Resident Evil game anymore unless you think about it in relation to the movie. Because that is just that is just a third person action game with some zombies. There is 
so little of the tone or anything that made, you know, the first few Resident Evil games kind of spooky. So I was going to say, people kind of think of that as sort of the low point for the series, don't they generally? I hope so. If you okay. don't think that Resident <laughs> Evil 6 is the low point of the series, stop listening right now. <laughs> it's, so, yeah, I, I guess I do kind of have a little bone to pick with the movies, and it's not really the movie's fault. But in the back of my mind, I kind of always blame them for what happened to the series prior to it getting a little bit back on track with Resident Evil 7. Like Mila Jovovich did this? <laughs> I don't think that's her name, and I don't think she did this. <laughs> <laughs> The interesting thing is that really, you know, a Resident Evil movie had been in production much earlier than this. There were rumors of an adaptation in 1997, kind of just as, you know, Resident Evil, the first one was kind of exploding, becoming incredibly popular. And that's when that one had Bruce Campbell to attached to it, oh. at least in terms of the rumors. But then something much more concrete is that in 1998, Capcom hired George Romero himself to write and direct a commercial for the Japanese release of Resident Evil 2. Oh, shit. And so... That commercial exists. In a lot of ways, I think that commercial captures the tone of the games better than this movie does, um, not to jump too far ahead. Uh, and be kind of coming out of that and because of that relationship, Sony and Capcom hired Romero to write and direct a film adaptation. And he had envisioned it as this R-rated horror film, basically following the plot of the first game. And the goal is to release it in time with the third game. Uh, Sony and Capcom, though, rejected... This adaptation, I think a script is actually floating around on the internet, so I think you can get a oh, sense cool. of what this what this would have looked like. Um, but apparently a Capcom producer said that Romero's version didn't feel like Resident Evil, which is hmm. right uh, an irony <laughs> considering that it is meant to be an homage to Dawn of the Dead. And then also, if you're going, if you want something that has the feel of Resident Evil, why would you go and then hire Paul W.S. Anderson in 2001? Right. So so here's here's my theory. You, okay, you know like that time Vince McMahon hired the wrong one-legged wrestler? No, dude, nobody knows that. Okay, well he did. Go 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 Google it, people. Go Google it. <laughs> okay. Educate, okay, go educate Google yourselves. It. <laughs> <laughs> um learn your history. But but okay, but I think a similar thing happened here where I think you know Shinji Mikami or you know some higher up at Capcom realizes that they want to make Resident Evil a prestige film. They want to make it classy. And they're also these huge fan of Boogie Nights. Oh, my God. And, okay, and you know, like, how in Japan, people don't really have middle names. I don't think people don't have middle names there. So they see who, who directed Boogie Nights. Ah, Paul Anderson. Get me Paul Anderson. <laughs> and, hoping that they get Paul Thomas Anderson, P.T. Anderson. And but instead, they get the cheaper one. <laughs> they come back with Paul Anderson, Paul Wesley Snipes, Anderson. And that's the guy who makes their movie. That there's that's the only explanation. That they wanted a Resident Evil Boogie Nights and instead they got this. But but yeah, it's weird, you know, both of these directors that we're talking about today really just got a lot of game adaptations. And I think they both got them in these circuitous spooky ways where the hands of fate pulling the strings. <laughs> But yeah, before we get into this, I, I don't think we're going to get into this movie in a great, great deal. But let's set up what this is, and then we'll talk about this as a Resident Evil movie. Sure. So uh, this basically has uh, the main character, Mila Jovovich, um, whose name is who Alice. Alice. Alice Mila, whatever. Who, who is a, who is a we, character? We have Alice and Alicia are our two main characters. 
<laughs> yes. And and Alice is, uh, you might know this, but is just is a character created for the movies. She's the protagonist of all the movies, but she does not exist in the games yet. I like that, not. and I think it's good. I, yeah, I'm kind agreed. of glad of that. Um, so she plays a woman who starts the film with amnesia, but is a uh, sort of security staff agent for Umbrella Corporation, which has this huge secret underground lab where um, there's been an, an industrial accident, the T-virus is loose, and so she and uh, this team of other security personnel who work for Umbrella are going to have to infiltrate the lab, get in through all the layers of it down to the base to figure out what's happened and contain this problem. And in the meantime, they have to contend with this AI security system that runs the entire lab, which is called the Hive. Uh, and the AI is called uh, the Red Queen. And so at the start of the film, the Red Queen, in response to the the outbreak of the T-virus, locked the whole lab down and basically killed everyone who was inside it. So all those people are now zombies. We have to get in to deal with the zombies and then get back out. That's the plot of our movie, basically. And I mean, that's a pretty skeletal story plot. Like it's it has a lot of like very standard zombie movie beats other than this. But also, this is the most video game ass plot <laughs> I can think of in anything I've watched in a minute. Every two seconds in this, some character is like, I have to restore power to the rail lines or like oh, we can't take the main passage to that district because it's flooded. We're going to have to go through the service tunnels. You know, every building in video games has service tunnels that you have to go through at some point. They're going to do that here. It's like, oh, we have to we have to get to the AI mainframe so we can disconnect the server from the, like, I'm just saying tech words at this point. But it's it's all that kind of stuff where it's like the kind of, non-plot not like sort of contentless redirection and just like okay now we have to go through some more hallways and encounter some more stuff for like reasons that don't matter um it's, it's i'm so used to that stuff in video games but it kind of stands out here like i think i'm <laughs> less accustomed to that in movies like it's like why are we constantly having to talk about our routing and pathways and restoring power and like all this all this weird stuff and we keep getting shots of the sweet map oh yes so when they're you're first coming the most video game moment of the whole thing is when they're first approaching the hive which is the underground research facility by this underground train you fully get a character in voiceover explaining we're approaching the hive layer one is blah 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 and seeing this 3d map rendering of it with like a little you are here sort of <laughs> uh blinking like red indicator it's it's so extremely a video game map it's so funny it's not because it's a pretty good map unlike most video <laughs> game maps it's a good map Fair. but it's like you're at the top you're at the first floor of the hive and clearly like you're gonna have to work your way down to the bottom like it's just so clear what our goal is going to be you know as we progress it's just it's very funny yeah it's a very interesting movie in the sense that in some ways like you're saying it is very much you know, emulating video games structurally, it just forgot to emulate the video game that is that it is adapting. <laughs> yes, that yes. is what I would say is the number one flaw of this movie as an adaptation is that it kind of forgot about that part. You know, like when you think of Resident Evil, especially Resident Evil One, and, and you know, this movie came out before Four, so it would have come out, I think, between you know Code Veronica and Four. It came out. 
I think was Code Veronica after three. Yes, three Veronica, and then okay. And then I think this came out around the time the remake of one came out on GameCube. Okay, and you know, partially due to the fact that that game didn't do as well as people were hoping, and that this movie was pretty popular. That's why four, according to Shinji Mikami, incorporated a little bit of uh, action elements as seen in the movie. Um, Hmm. One in particular that I'll that I'll talk about in a bit. (laughs) Um, the the part where they where the game takes something interesting from the movie, I think. But you know, when you're thinking about those Re- Resident Evil games, you think of slow pace, you know, yep. that are kind of forced upon you by the tank controls. You think about resource scarcity and just kind of a general, you know, somber tone. Not necessarily the dreadful tone of Silent Hill, but it is, you know, there there is tension in the air. A sustained tension is what I would associate with uh, with Resident Evil. Yeah. The one thing that this movie does not have is tension in any sense. <laughs> True. It tries to have moments of tension and just fails. I think we both noted that this movie is just full of failed jump scares. Yes. Jump scares that are not jump scares. Like it has the pacing of that, but the camera will just shift and there's just like another character standing there that you're like, oh, Okay. And considering that we're both very susceptible to jump scares, the fact that none of these actually made us jump, I think, speaks to the failures of this movie. And really the whole thing, it's like there's all these moments where in a normal, in in a horror movie, the tension would be built up so that the payoff could actually be a little bit frightening. But in here, it's like somebody said, we have to cut this movie. You have to make it like 10 minutes shorter. And so we'll just cut all the moments of the tension buildup because reveals always seem to happen like three beats too soon. It's like, (laughs) oh, you're, you're doing what, you know, how a normal movie would set up some tension, but instead of letting that linger so that, you know, as a, as a spectator, we can actually, you know, feel some suspense. There's like, oh, here's the, here's the thing (laughs) just immediately. So that doesn't work for me. We have a mansion, kind of. We have a mansion, kind of. And actually, the mansion part, I think, is my favorite part of this movie. Um, it's also in the mansion where you get some shots that are, I think are you're supposed to be kind of from the Red Queen's surveillance AI perspective, but mimic some shots from Resident Evil 1, kind of the, the static camera. Yeah, yeah. And those shots are kind of gorgeous. And actually, you know, because they just show you this open space with... Um, off it, you know, Alice kind of walking through it. They actually do help set up some tension. And, you know, those are some of the spookiest shots in the film. And they're also kind of gorgeous. And there's maybe four of them in the whole movie. Yeah. And it's right at the start when Alice doesn't know what's going on yet. And so she's sort of alone navigating this space, which also is, you know, characters aren't alone in this movie really ever, except for Alice in this sequence. Like, there's not a lot of like, space or breathing room yeah and and you know that's the thing like so resident evil they they always work because you know you come in as a team but then you get separated and there's always that moment of relief when you rejoin the team um in this game characters are mostly together alice does get separated for a bit but that is completely inconsequential because (laughs) when she gets separated she realizes that she is some kind of like martial arts super weapon This is another case where there's what sort of should have been a better reference to the original Resident Evil game that just doesn't really work, where when she's alone, she gets attacked by these dogs. Zombie dogs. Iconic. Yes, iconic. Um, One of the most iconic jump scares 
ever, right? The, right? the zombie dogs in one crashing through the windows, which they actually do try to do that part and it doesn't work because they don't build up any tension. Well, and also this is so as soon as <laughs> as soon as they show up, she's Alice is is like just recovering her memories of being this like security agent, right? And as soon as the dog showed up, I said out loud, half jokingly, she's about to remember that she knows Kung Fu and Roundhouse kicked this thing in the face. And boy, was I correct about That's, that? Yeah. So so she has a gun. And so th- there's there's these dogs facing her and she kind of unloads her gun on the dogs. Um, one is still standing and she runs out of bullets. So this dog starts rushing her. And yeah, she just jumps into the air and like Matrix style kicks this dog right in the face, <laughs> right in his dog schnoz. And it's like, OK, there's there's no more tension anymore for this movie. And foreshadowed Resident Evil 6, where you ideally will run through that game suplexing zombies because the suplexes are more powerful than your bullets. Yeah, this is a major problem this movie has, which is that it has it spends no time in the space where just dealing with one zombie at a time feels scary or like a threat at all. Like it's like as soon as it has introduced zombie like most of Resident Evil, if you encounter one zombie in a space, you have a pro like there is tension there. This it's like as soon as we find out the distance from learning their zombies to like having to deal with hordes coming at you is like five minutes. In this. And let me tell you about this one zombie. So this is another moment where they just like botched what should be, I think, the easiest layup in video game movie adaptation history when you get the reveal of the first zombie. Yes. Again, what is one of the most iconic images in gaming history, it's the reveal of the first zombie in Resident Evil 1 when you open the door and you get this cutscene of the back of this zombie just and you hear this disgusting noise and he's just hunched over a body. Yeah, and, and he's like, just eating it and then slowly like rises up and turns to you. And that's your first yeah. encounter with the zombie. Here's how zombies are revealed in this <laughs> game. You have Michelle Rodriguez playing a character called Rain, just kind of walking forward she hears a noise and she's going to investigate and she's walking forward with her with her her gun out and this actor zombie just like stumbles into the frame it's almost like this actor missed their cue and somebody just like pushed her into the frame <laughs> it just kind of flops into frame and then tries to bite Michelle Rodriguez and Michelle Rodriguez dispatches her it is very unexciting one thing that i did like that i want to say in favor of zombies in this movie is that it takes a shitload of bullets to take them down. Like that felt right. Like Michelle Rodriguez fires on this thing once and it does not care. It's fun. Like that is the Resident Evil. For a moment, I had a glimmer of what it feels like to try to fight a zombie in Resident Evil. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they're not they're not simple to take out, right? Um, so that worked. But yeah, and and as I was saying, like the the time from that appearance to them just being just a horde at all times is is so so little. Uh, it's almost like the the movie is insecure about whether it can make individual zombies be frightening or feel tense or anything like that. Um which is a very weird choice for a Resident Evil movie. I mean, it also doesn't help when you have a shot of the zombies approaching and the whoever is out in the lead looks like a shambling Jonathan Blow. Well, yeah, they're all the old lab people, right? So they're all they're all just like scientists I think you and think, lab coats. Yeah, I think you thought he looked like Billy Corgan. I don't know who looks less threatening, Jonathan Blow or Billy Corgan, but I think we're talking about the same one. 
Billy Corgan's tall, at least. I think he's like six <laughs> four, so it's probably him. You know. Oh, that that's it. Yeah, they're all the people we saw in the lab at the beginning of the movie. Who you know, the last time we saw them, they were being defeated by sprinklers. I swear to God, the first ten mo- minutes of this movie is just people getting sprayed by sp- the sprinkler system in the in the hive. And one lady gets beheaded, which is the first of we get two beheadings of ladies in the first like twenty five minutes of this film, which is a lot of beheadings. So this is this is the other thing that's we- that I feel like is a weird. Speaking of beheadings, and also this film being insecure about whether what kind of impact it can get from zombies, I feel like. That insecurity is part of what has made them create this plot with this AI that I want to talk about very badly. Okay. Because to me, does AI work in a, in the world of Resident Evil is my question. Does it work thematically? Does it work narratively? Um, is this a rhetorical question? Yes, because the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I think like... I've been trying to put my finger on why I dislike this AI plot so much because I really, really do. And so at the start of it, when they're talking about the Red Queen being this this security AI, I was thinking, and I think I said to you, oh, I bet there's going to be like a body horror twist on this where it's like they're going to f- get to the Red Queen and it's going to be like a human body that is like doing the the computational stuff or something like that. There's going to be like a physical biological element to this thing that is where the horror will come from. Um, That's not it. Uh, It's just a computer in a mainframe. She does have some sick lasers, but I just like, so there's a lot of, there's, there's science in Resident Evil, but I think of Resident Evil as labby, but not techie, if that makes sense. Like it's very like, it's like Island of Dr. Moreau shit, not like yeah, cyberpunk yeah. shit. And I just think that like in the world of like biological genetic experiments and stuff like that, an AI is a very strange and complex thing to introduce into the sort of cosmology of Resident Evil. It sits very uncomfortably alongside a lot of the other themes of Resident Evil. And I think like the thing that I found the most frustrating about this, so they have to get to the Red Queen's mainframe home, which also I thought they would get there at least and it would be like a crazy red room with like light, like there'd be some drama. It's just like a computer. <laughs> um, and so first they have to take out her mainframe and then eventually, of course, they figure out now all the stuff's in lockdown. They have to essentially bring her back online so that they can get out and navigate that. So I feel like the plot reason why you would want to introduce an AI into a zombie movie is so that you can have the AI propose a solution or a compromise that makes sense in like the cold calculation of a computer, but is like um, humanly horrifying that that would be like a a, a source of, of horror. And I feel like the movie kind of tries to do that because at one point when they're very close to the end and the AI has been helping them now, um, the AI says that it'll let them out, but they have to choose to leave behind Michelle Rodriguez, who has been bitten by the zombies and infected by the T-virus because the Red Queen's, I guess, prime directive or whatever is to contain the T-virus, which is why she killed everybody in the first place, Um, even though that made zombies, whatever. I guess she didn't know what it would do. But like, that is not... 
Like Michelle Rodriguez is like on the edge of death at this point. Like it's it's not that cr- like you could have put that in a human character's mouth. It's not it's not far enough along the like too cold calculus line mm. for that to be a good application of AI thinking. You know what I mean? Like we're not doing themes right now. This is just a lazy you didn't need this. You didn't need all this. Did you just I think they just wanted to have they were like spooky ai it's going to be a high-tech lab we're going to have a spooky ai it's going to rule there's zombies but there's also an ai and somehow this movie makes the spookiest thing in the world british children not oh my god okay also the red queen voiced by peppa pig it's like alice i have been waiting for you do you want to play it's it's so stupid it's really, really, really bad and just like sucks off. Why call a thing the Red Queen if as invoking like Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland, if when you get there, oh, Alice in Wonderland and Alice is Milly Oh, holy shit. I'm stupid. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I just got that. But why call it that and then have it manifest as like this weird British child that doesn't make sense? Get your themes together. <laughs> this is so frustrating. Why do any of this? There's one good thing that the Red Queen has, and that's a laser room, a laser hallway. Oh, yeah. You love this. I think this is the best scene in the movie. It's the best idea in the movie where, as you know, as they're trying to get through, the Red Queen traps um, a bunch of characters um, we have not named. I do not remember the... Because there's this also, you know, there's this contingent of people who are not part of the the main character cast, but they're just meant to be fodder, especially in this scene. So, they, you know, they enter this room and the Red Queen traps them in this in this white hallway. And then you just see this like thin horizontal laser just come across, you know, just come across the room. And anything that is touched by it is just immediately, I don't know, sliced or burned or off or something. But this is where you get the second decapitation. Yep. Um, this is where... One guy gets his hand cut off, but then there's the chief. This <laughs> was that his name? No, that, we don't that, know. We don't that's remember. What I'm calling him, but spiritually the chief, yes. And he's clearly the leader of this group. He's a buff guy. He's not taking any of the Red Queen shit. Her laser comes across. He dodges it. She decides she's going to make it harder to dodge. So she has multiple lasers. He kind of, you know, dodges through them. She does another one. He like does this impressive chin up yeah. <laughs> uh, using all of his strength and his agility gets through that one. And so then the Red Queen just turns his laser into like this chain link fence type grid that you cannot you cannot possibly avoid. And it just goes through and just chops him into a bunch of little cubes and he just falls apart like a hot knife through butter. This is awesome. This is a great idea. They actually use this idea in Resident Evil 4 where you have to gymnastics your way through some red lasers. But is there is there AI in RE4? No, it just no, right? this is just a security. Okay, system. just the laser. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need a red queen to have these sweet lasers. Well, I agree that's my whole point. <laughs> but I think this is I think I remember when I saw this movie as a kid too. This is the scene that stood out as just it, 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 it's like I found it like viscerally upsetting when when they turn into that grid and you know he has no escape and he's going to be chopped into some little cubes and it I still find it effective. This is I, I think this is the movie's greatest idea and I want to I want to give it that I want to pat whoever came yeah. up with the idea on the back. You know what is not this movie's greatest idea? <laughs> what having a CGI monster? 
Oh, liquor. Yeah, another key piece of Resident Evil iconography. Boy, it looks like shit in this one. <laughs> <laughs> it looks really bad. It looks so bad. This movie, there's no like, you know, we talk in Silent Hill, like, oh, the early awkward graphics just add a real something to the design. That is not, that effect is not present here. It just looks like shit. It looks so bad. It, it looks it, so it looks shiny. So, it's like they didn't. So, 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 so bad. They couldn't render the lighting on them or something. It's, oh, it's brutal. And, and you know, like the last fight of the movie is just against this thing when they're, you know, they're trying to escape on this iconic Resident Evil looking train, which is also kind of cool. But it, it's hard to take that final fight seriously when it's against. Uh, it just, it looks so awful. <laughs> which is, again, this is, you know, an artifact of the time, but it, but it doesn't help. <laughs> Yeah, when we're trying to get on board with this movie, and I, I think we both left this movie. And again, you know, I've seen this movie before, but I think after House of the Dead, coming to this, it was just, uh, it wasn't the palate cleanser. It wasn't the pick me up that I was hoping. If Can anything I tell you it was something? just, yes. If I had to choose one movie from today to watch again, it would a hundred percent be House of the Dead. <laughs> oh, no, it <laughs> will. Oh, there there was this other great innovation um, in Resident Evil, though, that I think was very experimental, very creative use of filmmaking. So Alice and then there's this other character, Spence, they they have some kind of connection to each other, but we're, we're not really sure what. And, you know, the film kind of lets us know about these con- this connection through flashbacks. And, they you know, the film flashes back to events that happened before the movie began. Oh my god. What what a creative use of a flashback. I thought flashbacks were to flash back to a thing that literally just happened. Yeah, it's a really it's a really novel interesting storytelling device. We'll see if more films pick it up in the future. Yeah, I would like to say Resident Evil innovated that flashback. <laughs> Even though it's, I think it came out before House of the Dead. I have an understanding of time like Uva Bull does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this was definitely a movie. But in terms of, you know, just pure enjoyment, even, re- you know, regardless of whether this is a, a fine adaptation, yeah, maybe 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 you go with House of the Dead. If Though you have I, someone to watch with you and you want to pop some popcorn and drink one to three beers and watch something, choose House of the Dead. That's what I think. And also no rap rock in this movie. <laughs> yeah, crucial. And it's from the early 2000s. That is a sin. The the one thing that did I think made us make us both feel like this movie was from a different time was the opening narration when they were explaining the history of Umbrella, and oh, the God, narrator yes. was making the point that you know people think that Umbrella is just a benevolent biotech company, a household company in nine out of ten homes, but they actually specialize in military technology. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how quaint! Imagine if tech companies actually made their money from military applications. Anyway, try time to fire up my Microsoft Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's so that's uh, I think some of our main thoughts about Resident Evil. Not quite a run through of the movie, but I, I might have enjoyed it better if it was not called Resident Evil. If it was just an original property, I think that's yeah. part of what's disappointing about it. But also, no tension. So, do you have any final thoughts? I have one final thought from all of this. Respect your villain. Respect your threat. Like, we we can't be afraid of your thing if 
you if your movie isn't acting like it's afraid of your thing. Don't apologize for your villains. Don't, you know, be afraid to let us see them or spend time with them one for each. Don't put Pyramid Head on top of a carousel. Let him be the knife-dragging freak that he was born to be. Let him be out there in the fog. Wait till you see Pyramid Head in a go-kart. I... <laughs> in, like, cheapy form. That genuinely bums me out, dude. You better be making that shit up. I'm pretty sure he's in a go-kart in a in a Konami kart racer. That sucks. I want to go watch someone stream him in Dead by Daylight. I feel like that would be super fun to watch. You think that's a, you think that's a proper use of Pyramid Head? Yes. Yes, of course it is. <laughs> what are you are you kidding? Of course that's the ideal you you get to, somebody gets to be him and you get to run away from him and he has player intelligence? Yes, that's the best possible application. That's be the representation of a psyche. It makes no sense. Oh my god. Why he okay, would be if, in this. If he has to be anywhere outside of Silent Hill, Dead by Daylight is at least an appropriate container for him. <laughs> Ideally, he would just be in Silent Hill. Listen, stop who, it. Don't get me worked up about it. I, I don't know who you are to dictate where Pyramid Head can go on vacation or not. Oh, God. Into p- pachinko machines. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's where he lives now. <laughs> the, the hell of the pachinko parlor. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> oh God, I'm I'm calling it. We're done. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking with us through this. Um, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. Um, you can always find out more information about the show at neverwasagamer.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. And, uh, you know, we still have this Uva Bowl hangover. And so we're actually going to be taking a little bit of a break, a kind of one episode hiatus. So we're going to be back on November 25th, starting our new arc. And one of the reasons for this is because the new arc is going to involve some heftier games uh, that Michelle's really wanted to play for a long time. But we want to give her a little bit more time to play them, to enjoy them, to give them the time they deserve. So we're going to take a little bit of a, a break and be back on November 25th after Michelle has played... System Shock 2. Yes. Almost, you know, we started this show with you talking about your experience with Bioshock, and here you are going to System Shock. So I hope you're excited about that. I am. So we'll see you all on November 25th to talk about System Shock 2, because taking time off to play video games is an essential part of being a gamer.